Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Lean Whiskey. It's been three months, Jamie, but we're back for episode 39. Yes, it, it has been a little while. Um, and uh, that's that's too bad, but usually it's because good things get in the way. But uh, what's what's new with you? The book is coming along. Um, I don't have a copy to hold up yet, but maybe next time we do an episode, I will. The Mistakes That Make Us. Cultivating a Culture of Learning and Innovation um, is done with the copy editing. It is going into uh, the page layout and design process and proofreading. I think I'll have even some early copies. I, I don't have an exact date, but I'm saying early June. It might go on sale early June, but I'm trying to spend a lot of this time here on uh, marketing, prep work, and advance and everything. Awesome. That's a, a huge hurdle, obviously, you know, getting the book, you know, written and, and off to editing is, is, is the big milestone for the author. And, you know, I'll say for me, it didn't feel like it because there was still a lot of work to be done and a, yep. a long time to go. But, um, but yeah, you certainly, you know, uh, know the accomplishment of that and celebrated, uh, uh, the, the, the book, the book is done. And, um, you know, almost ready for release. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a fun, fun story. Uh, Just, you know, taking all these lessons from, from the the podcast series, uh, my favorite mistake, and then generating the lessons learned and making it into, you know, a teachable point of view, uh, which is, you know, interestingly not, um, you know, it's, it's not about lean, uh, it is perhaps born with lean thinking and mm-hmm. uh, lean adjacent. But, lean adjacent is what I was, I was going to say. Yep. Yeah, but certainly not, you know, just here's a lean, a yep. lean tool or topic that we're, you're trying to promote. So Yeah, there's some lean elements, some psychological safety concepts, which do have some connections uh, to Toyota. I'm going to be talking about yeah. that at Kinexicon, the Kinexus oh, user yeah. conference, the end of May. Bring Excellent. Yes, yeah, so I've been to Kinexicon. I don't remember if it was called Kinexicon then. It was but... not called that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've been to the user conference. How about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Goes by both names, but I'll be giving a talk. Um, and then I, I was going to mention when you talk about people from the book and from the podcast and from this podcast, David Meyer, Lens Creek Distilling. I had a chance to go down and see him recently. Um, picked up a couple of bottles of uh, Barrel Strength Cafe Olay. I was able to, to snag. Nice. And so went down and, and picked them up. And we'll, I'll put a link in, we'll put a link in the show notes or a blog post about um, the Kaizen opportunity that I discovered driving home and the couple of bottles were clinking together. You put them together in a bag and I wasn't mad about it. But, you know, well, the long story short of it is I reached out and I said, well, you know, hey, we're driving back. And, you know, I just kept hearing that clinking. And, you know, man, I'm sure, that, sure there's, a, there's, there's a Kaizen opportunity there. And as you would hope a Toyota person would do, um, he ran with it. So uh, we'll, we'll just put that in a blog post. And, and, and it was creativity before capital. Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly it. You know, it, um, 
So people can people can read about it in the blog post, but not everything needs a fancy solution. So uh, creativity before capital, a whole chapter uh, in people solve problems. Um, <laughs> well, so speaking of that and that phrase, people solve problems. It's it's not just a book anymore, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it won't be just a book anymore. Right. So uh, I'm 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 going to do. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to keep up with the the. Uh, the podcast history of Mark Raven, but it's a podcast I, empire, actually. Empire, yes. empire. Yeah, I'll have a little uh, fiefdom. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm going to launch a podcast called People Solve Problems, um, just based on the book. It'll be sort of a short form podcast, 10 to 20 minutes. Um, uh, talk with authors, thought leaders, practitioners, different folks about their views on problem solving and Hopefully here, I mean, I, I think if people read the book, they should know that I think there's not one right way to do it. So we'll learn from many people's lessons around mm -hmm. problem solving, which, again, I think is a, a, a human skill, a strategic skill, a, a core skill for, for any any field. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to start recording uh, in about a month. I'm going to start getting invites out for uh, participants probably tomorrow. and and. Um, yeah, excited to, to to do a different project and just see how it goes. I don't know if we'll have ten episodes or or five hundred, like uh, yeah. like, like Mark has. So. It's getting close to five hundred on lean blog interviews, which is kind getting of getting real close. Yeah, four seventies now. Awesome. I'm gonna have to think about something. Boy, I think it'll, be, it'll come at this pace next year. Okay, well, for another time, what to do with episode 500. We're going to have to a big party. We'll brainstorm that. I'll, I'll help. So. Big party at a distillery somewhere. People are welcome to come. Yes. Okay. So, so yeah, you mentioned David Meyer, who's probably the most mentioned person on this podcast. So mm -hmm. It is the ultimate lean whiskey. But but we aren't drinking, you know, as much as we do talk about him. And Glens Creek, we're, we're not drinking his stuff today. Nope. Um, we, uh, we, we, we picked it. You'd think at episode 39 that we'd run out of themes, but turns out, no, uh, no, <laughs> no. So I, uh, a fresh theme, uh, for today is, uh, sourced juice. Uh, basically when, um, distilleries, uh, don't, or I should say, uh, whiskey labels, <laughs> uh, companies do not distill their own juice, their own whiskey. Um, they, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, starting with, uh, you, you buy some juice to blend with your own, mm -hmm. um, which is at one level. Uh, there's, there's others that, you know, they, they, they blend their own. So they'll buy a bunch of other whiskey and blend. Um, and others will, you know, buy it pre-blended and just stick it in a bottle. So they mm -hmm. taste it, they select it, but they uh -huh, just stick right. it in a bottle and put their label on it. So there could be secondary aging that's happening. Right. It could be secondary aging. Blending. So yeah, not just blending. There can be some some extra extra aging, even if it's just for a portion of mm -hmm. what you're buying that's sourced. Um yeah. and 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 there's some uh some distilleries that open obviously, you know, if you're doing higher end whiskey, you know, it's really hard to open up your doors and you can't sell anything for four years, right? That's quite the challenge. Right. Not many people have a business model that works that way. So they they buy source juice for several years, 
and then they phase that out and and phase in their own stuff as after it's aged. Yeah. Well, you know, with bourbon, I mean, it depends on how. I mean, you, how how aggressive you want to be. Like some people put out product that's two years aged. Um, Scotland has the longer requirement. Right. Exactly how many years? It's harder to do that there. But um, yeah, boy, it's a complicated supply chain sometimes. And you know, Dave, David Dave Meyer um, distills most of what he's selling, but he buys some rye. Um, yep. I think his Reisky or there, there's some stuff that's been sourced, but you know, Dave's not, you know, he's not the example of a distillery that's been open. He's been open, what, seven years. If he was selling a 20 year whiskey, like, well, clearly that's sourced. Right. <laughs> there are some places I, I had some uh, Augusta distilling from uh, Kentucky. They're brand new. They're not producing anything yet, but they released a 23, 20 and 23 year old bourbon mm-hmm. on Buckner's. So, you know, there's there's skill, I guess, a different skill in finding and procuring and selecting and whatever. But yeah, you know, I like I don't care. Like to me, I don't care if it's sourced. Just no BS. Like just just disclose it. It's okay. Yeah, and there, there's some you know obviously requirements uh, around labeling. So you know it has to say at least where it was distilled and where it was bottled. So. If if your company's in Tennessee and it was as much is done, you know, distilled in Indiana, um, then you know they didn't distill it, and that's pretty easy. And that one's really easy to figure out who distilled it, right? If it's Indiana, um, MGP. M- MGP is the the provider, right, um, of of source whiskey, but not the only one, but the, yeah. the big one. And so, yeah, if you see distilled in Indiana, you pretty much know that's where it came from, but. Yeah. Um, you know, when it's distilled in the same town as a distillery, you don't know, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously people like, uh, the, I'll say the manufacturers, the producers, uh, like a little bit of mystery behind uh, some of their bottles and some of their process, um, either to help with the cachet of the whiskey or to prevent people from trying to uh, backdoor their mm-hmm. brand, right? So, right. Pappy, Pappy, which was sourced for a while, right. Yeah. right? Actually, that was interesting. It was like, well, we used to make it, then we no longer make it, then we sourced it and tried to blend it so it tasted <laughs> like it used to just because the family knew the taste and yeah. now made in partnership or by Buffalo Trace. And so yeah. people buy up Buffalo Trace products thinking, oh, it's just a cheap way to get, you know, Pappy, which yeah. isn't true, of course. But yeah. Um, the, the thought behind it. So yeah. But you know, I I, I had one recently, um, you know, being in Cincinnati, by the way, there there are a lot of um bourbon aficionados and there is a group that I've joined. It's called the Original Greater Cincinnati Bourbon Society. And they do monthly meetings and this is where like you know people from distilleries come in and present and share and taste, but people bring bottles to share and somebody brought one from a distillery uh, called Green River. And so I always like to check out. I was just like, well, what's the bottle say? And what's the story? And in like the tiniest of tiny lettering on the back of the bottle, like gold foil print hidden in like a green background. I'm like, they just, it's distilled and bottled by this company. And like that usually 
people are hiding the sourced nature of it and they're trumpeting. It's like, we distilled this. It says so on big letters, you know, somewhere in the front of the bottle, but yep. I guess they yeah, had other marketing messaging and information they thought was more important. Well, and, and what, you know, what's interesting is there's some whiskey companies that are probably better at marketing than they are at making it and others that put all their energy into making it. Mm -hmm. Hope the marketing takes care of itself. And, and, you know, between the two, I'd rather have the, the latter. Um, so I'm, I'm probably biased every, you know, every time I see source whiskey, it, mm. it like before I've tried it, I, I, and it's unfair, but I probably give it a black mark before I've even tried it. But, um, but yeah, I, I think I agree with you as long as they're not, you know, they're not hiding it, then, you know, that's yeah. okay. That's, that's what they were doing. And, and there's, Plenty of talent in the blending. There's plenty of talent. It even it's a skill. Yeah. Picking a good barrel, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you have these stores that do barrel picks of whiskeys that you can otherwise get, you know, a barrel yeah. pick of Elijah Craig. It's like, well, did they do a good job with a barrel pick? Like that's, yeah. that's a skill that's yeah. worth a few extra dollars. There's, there's a whole sub industry in Scotland of independent bottlers like Caden Heads and some other brands that are like really recognizable. And sometimes they're allowed to disclose where they sourced it from and sometimes not. But like they have this access to to get these uh, these barrels and like that name, even if you don't recognize the name of the source distillery, like to me, generally speaking, that Cadenhead's name is a big seal of quality, a stamp of right. proof, yes. whatever you might say. And maybe that's more, but like they'll have a whole store. Like here's a Cadenhead shop that sells nothing but their sourced and bottled and branded whiskeys. We don't see that here in the U.S. It's an interesting difference. No, there's, you know, I, I, there is a there is a company that does something like that, but I can't remember the name. So, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's it's the, the selection uh, of the barrel is there's plenty of skill in that. And if you know they're good at it, then you buy a bottle from them and you know you're going to have a good experience. So, yeah. Now, like for the U.S. And, and let's say Costco liquor doesn't have a standalone store that's nothing but Kirkland brand spirits. Right. Similar thing with Trader Joe's. For me, that's been so they do a lot of that private labeling. But to me, like the, those have been more hit or miss. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're just, you know, they're they're perhaps selling to a different clientele that's not looking for the premium that that means it's okay that it's her mess. So, yeah. Um, but I did see a Costco once that had something like, um, well, no, they had a really old, super expensive Macallan, but I think they bottled stuff and, and like, it's cheap compared to what you would get of saying like, you know, Kirkland brand, 21 year age scotch. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yep. well, okay. The price is low enough. You know, you take, take a chance on it. Right. Yeah. It's absolutely. Whiskeys. So, so what, are you, what are you drinking? So I'm drinking um, Hala bourbon whiskey. Um, I, I don't believe this can actually be bought, which might be unfair, but that's just the way it goes. Hold, so, that, hold that up again. Is that a really dark label? Yeah, it's it's sort okay. of a chocolate. It, you know, it's, it's whiskey label, so it's brown, but it's kind yeah. of a chocolate chocolate cover with a purple accent. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Hala is a, uh, an interesting brand. I'm actually an investor in the company. Oh. Um, and they're, they're, 
Disclosure. Yeah. No. Disclosure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, but there, you know, did pay for the bottle, but, uh, um, it wasn't a, wasn't a gimme or a, a, a shareholder, uh, 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 distribution, but, um, I, they're really, you know, they're, they're, they specialize in vodka and, and they do, um, a lot of, uh, infused vodkas, um, a lot of, I'll say crazy, I don't even drink regular vodka, but yeah. a lot of crazy, uh, infused flavors, jalapeno, pickle, cotton. Oh, I see what they did there. It's not how, how, not jalapeno, jala. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so, uh, so they're, they're a vodka company primarily and, and based in PA and, uh, distributes, you know, all over, but, uh, obviously has a stronger base here, but they did essentially, uh, um, a special whiskey, a special, uh, in this case, uh, a weeded four year aged weeded bourbon whiskey. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I don't know if they're going to do more, um, or if this was just a one one experiment or uh, a stepping stone towards something. Um, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of uh, the micro stills. You'll see do a whole bunch of different spirits, but you don't see Buffalo Trace getting into vodka, right? So I don't know if that'll go the other way. I did do, you know, because it it it. You know, it tells you where it's distilled. It's distilled in Statesville, North Carolina. Hmm. Well, there's, it's not, it, Google doesn't take, take long to find uh, a Statesville, North Carolina distillery that does bottles or does barrels for other companies um, and seems to focus on weeded bourbon. <laughs> so, Makes sense. Uh, so, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not that this comes from Southern Distilling Company. Um, and and you know right on their website they're advertising that they will you know make make whiskey for for other other companies. Um, but then it was blended and bottled by a, a, a company that does specialize in whiskey uh, in York, PA, mm-hmm. uh, for Hala, based in York, PA. So a couple of <laughs> couple of levels: the distilling, the blending, and of course the uh, bottling and branding. Um, I, I kind of got the impression it was a single barrel, but um, uh, but maybe it was, but maybe it was so maybe it was blended, uh, maybe it was just blended or proof down, because mm. um, uh, I, I Wonder, believe yeah yeah it's a ninety proof. So I don't know if you I would call that blending. I would call it yeah proofing down. No, I would call it, yeah I wouldn't call that blending. It it uh, does it say blended? It does say blended and bottled. So. But does it say single barrel or you got it, that? But it, right. But it doesn't say single barrel. So, oh, okay, then. um, so, so my guess is, yeah, they, 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 they picked a few barrels and did some, did some blending on their own. So, uh, you know, neat company doing, you know, kind of breakthrough stuff, um, in the, in the vodka space. I think they're trying to hit, you know, you, uh, you kind of have like high end vodka that has lots of brand cachet and price. Mm-hmm and bottom shelf and they're kind of trying to hit the middle there um you know more accessible to to young young people and and uh but good quality as well and mm-hmm. and um so um you know and they use uh you know they use uh higher grade ethanol from both both cane and corn for different you know, so they 
you know, they're, they're not just, it's all the same and they just infuse it with different stuff. They're really trying to think through their vodka production and uh, make it right. So, so yeah, I, I, I got a bottle from their one, uh, their one batch. Um, you're not, it's not a numbered batch, but they're, they're one batch. Don't know if they'll have another. Um, and uh, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm drinking today. It's got nice color as you I mean, yeah. our listeners can't see, but um, got really nice color, especially for a, I'll say a 90 proof. Yeah. Is there any sort of, um, no, you said four year. Yeah. Four year uh, weeded bourbon definitely tastes like a weeded bourbon, you know, got, it's got the sweetness um, more than the, more than the spice and um, uh, yeah, pretty, pretty good. I'm, I'm uh I'm happy with it. It actually carries a little more heat than I'd expect out of 90 proof, but um, yeah. uh, I'm not going to complain about that. Yeah. Cool. Um, I ended up with two, I had two considerations. I had two on the shelf nearby that were both uh, from Indiana. One um, Penelope bourbon, which I think has had a lot of buzz recently. It's a, it's a four grain um, corn rye wheat, in malted barley, and it says on the label, distilled in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Well, that's even more clearly. That's where MGP right. is located. Uh, bottled in Bardstown, uh, Kentucky. But um, so I tasted it, and I tasted the other the one that I'm doing for the episode here um, is also it just says Indiana, <laughs> but it is uh, a brand called uh, the Senator. It's a straight rye whiskey, single barrel. Six years, actually, it's like six and a half years. So it's uh, it's barrel proof, uh, about fifty four percent ABV or one hundred and eight proof. And then this is an example of um, a store pick, so local liquor store, small independent liquor store that we like here in uh, Texas. It's one of their um, one of their picks, and it's uh, it, it just struck me, you know, it's still. Cooler spring weather, relatively speaking. So, like something a little heavier, a little spicier. Um, with the rye, spoke to me yesterday, and still liking it today. So it's ninety-five uh, percent rye, five percent malted barley, and you can see the packaging. I mean, it's very senatorial. Yeah, I guess. But um, yeah, it says um, bottled by Proof and Wood Ventures in Stanford. Connecticut, Kentucky. Okay. Connecticut, but no, Stanford, Kentucky. Um, but I like it. And I mean, like any, I mean, it's silly to, to say this. Um, it's rye. We know it says proudly made in USA. <laughs> Didn't need to tell me that, but. No, probably not, but that's, that's okay. But um, yeah, heck, even with the name of the Senator, it's uh, <laughs> uh, you're, you're headed down that path and, yeah, that's a that's a lot of rye, but um, yeah, a good six year, and we know MGP does a you know mm-hmm. uh, mm. they, they really do a good job with all their stuff, but you know their rye's I think uh, uh, do do quite well. So I mean that's I think really what is highly acclaimed. So, right. So back to the question of like, oh, don't look down on it because it's sourced. There are people who really look for these MGP rye's. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and. Um, you know, getting getting your the pick of the litter out of out of MGP and 
you know, it, it's interesting. MGP has started uh, launching some of their own brands. They, yes, um, they have. Yes. Small brands, which is an interesting uh, choice, right? Because now you're competing with your main customers, maybe, right? I mean, that's, I, I guess, if, if customers feel that they can, uh, they can get from here to there and get reliable source. But from what I've understood, I've, I, I think there's some companies that used to use source and that had a harder and harder time getting it Yeah, because all these companies have started. And so they've decided to distill themselves. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, uh, MGP became almost too popular. <laughs> um, and now that they're doing their own brands, you kind of wonder if they're, uh, if that's their long-term strategy, is they're gonna they're gonna stop providing a lot of source whiskey and extend instead mm-hmm. just extend into their own brands. So yeah. we'll have to watch that and see see where we go. Yeah, but some of the brands are just pulling up here: um, George Remus Straight Bourbon, Rossville Union Straight Rye, Yellowstone Kentucky Straight Bourbon. Those are MGP products, and then um, says you know popular products that are sourced. From MGP, just to name a few, well-known MGP sourced whiskeys include Angel's Envy Rye, mm-hmm. uh, Barrel Whiskey, um, High West, yep. which by High West is um, Utah, I believe. I think it is Utah, yeah. Um, Joseph Magnus Bourbon, which is outstanding. Um, Whistlepig Old World Rye, Willet Rye. So again, like some of these places, I'm sure Whistlepig at this point is distilling some of their own. They actually buy a lot of Canadian juice yeah they do they do but i think some of their higher end stuff comes from mgp is is the way that it works for whistle pig yeah mgp midwest grain products <laughs> yeah i mean you know if you're if you're not selling branded products you don't need a easily understood name mm-hmm. uh, but uh and i've tried to look i don't think they do tours because it's industrial right. i read an article i think a journalist maybe we should try to um, angle this as uh, you know, it's podcasters, but the <laughs> journalist had an opportunity to go in. He said it was like the only distillery tour where, if I remember right, you know, he um, was given like a high vis vest and a hard hat, and it would be like a factory tour, not a right. charming little distillery. No, they're, I mean, they're, they're very good at what they do, but they're, yeah, they're not a craft, they're a, they're a producer, right? And, um, uh, so like I said, we'll see. I, I think only because their product is wound up in so many good brands. Mm-hmm. And there's so much between podcasts and magazines and other things. There's so much investigative journalism mm-hmm. in, uh, in whiskey yeah. that, I, that everybody that loves whiskey knows, kind of knows at some point about MGP. So they're kind of like, well, okay, now maybe it's time to, put our own brands out there. So, yeah. so, uh, yeah, an interesting, interesting set of choices, but yeah. Cheers to choices. <laughs> Cheers to choices. That's the, that's the beauty of whiskey, right? All right. So then in the news, we're going to talk about some choices that a couple of CEOs have made and has been written about. So we can talk about, well, Hmm, was, was the motivation to have this written about, um, CEOs new, well, right now, relatively new, very relatively new CEO old. at Starbucks, relatively old, relatively what, 
Uber's CEO has been there, what, like three, four years now? Yeah, but... Good research uh, on my part, sorry. Yeah, but I, yeah, it, you know, it's hard to say whether all the years under COVID count as because you were you running the company as it's supposed to be or just hanging on. So, um, but yeah, I, I think he's, boy, I should know that. Um, I think he's been there a little longer, but yeah, the Starbucks uh, exec is new. Um, and, outside and, hire, yeah. And an outside hire, which is actually its own surprise, right? Because yeah. they've, 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 the other, 17 times that Schultz has retired and replaced himself. It was, I think it was from all internal promotions. And uh, this is the first time I think they have a, a CEO brought in straight from the outside. So Laxman Narasimhan. I apologize if I did say that perfectly okay. correctly. He, he, but he might, he might not be listening to this. Episode. He's probably not. And, um, but the thing that they're doing, these CEOs and what these articles are writing about is going to the front line, doing the work, um, driving uh, an Uber uh, vehicle, uh, Dara Koshra Shai. Again, apologies. That's not the whiskey talking. That's um, just me not knowing how. Uh, so it's uh, Dara. Um, yeah, is out driving Uber vehicles under kind of a fake name and a, a rented Tesla and Starbucks new CEO went and got training. I'll give him credit for that. Went through 40 hours of barista training yep. and going to the front line. But like, well, why and how and what are they accomplishing and what are they interacting? How are they interacting with people? But a couple of interesting stories. And we're going to link to these um, in the show notes, Wall Street Journal, um, about the Uber CEO, also about the Starbucks CEO. I think the Washington Post. Also had an article. So I don't know. So someone's got a line to the Wall Street Journal of like, hey, our CEO, he's just a normal guy. Write an article about it, would you? Like, I don't know. Was it the same? Again, poor research on my part. Was it the same journalist? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, uh, Heather, I uh, Heather Haddon is the uh, the author, journalist of um, the Starbucks piece. And then um, the Uber piece was uh Pratika Rana. So no, okay. not the same. But yeah. you know, there's there's editors that decide what some of these articles are. So it could it could all have been the same person um deciding. But it's it's an you know it is an easy story to write because you want you know you want stories to uh you know be easy to describe and you know you don't get a lot behind the veil of what happens in the CEO's life. And so uh, it's at least fun to write about, if nothing else. So I won't, I won't blame the journal for picking up the articles. Um, and other people wrote about them too, although I don't know if they were all. I, I, I don't know if they were all picking up in the Wall Street Journal. Article. Sometimes they're just derivative. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they're just derivative. The I think one of them, and I can't remember if it's Uber or Starbucks. I think it might be the Uber one, where it came out of notes maybe from an earnings call where they described it and then people or, or an interview and then they all, you know, mm. sort of, uh, iterated off of that, but kind of swooped in as opposed to a comms or PR firm comms department or PR firm pitching, pitching it. Yeah. Pitching it. So, um, yeah. So, in, you know, in the, in the Starbucks example, there's at least a, uh, you know, a rhythm behind it. It's, um, you know, an intent, uh, uh, and again, he's new, so we'll see how things go. But both that he 
and other execs will mm-hmm. all work four hours a, a month in a store. Um, and, and I think, if I understand this correctly uh, from the article, that it won't always be the same store. Yeah. Right? Uh, and they'll, they'll move around, go to different stores, take a shift, uh, or take four hours, right? Um, where I think Uber, and this, this has to be a bias sample size, uh, you know, because, again, he was always in the same car, so I doubt they moved the car around for him. I think he was just doing San Francisco. Which I'm is, sure. That's what it described. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of its own little market, right? I'm not, it's not good or bad. It's just San Francisco's different. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, I, you know, while it might be a popular place for Uber, I'm, I'm not sure it's, you oh. know, as representative of the whole Uber market as, uh, maybe what the Starbucks experience well, is. Well, but I mean, same question if Starbucks stores in Seattle are probably not representative of their global stores. No. And that's where I, 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 I hope they're not all just doing it in Seattle, yeah. but it, it's not clear. They didn't either didn't ask that question or didn't uh, include it in the article. Right. Um, but so, I mean, you're bouncing around to different stores. Um, <laughs> to me, that begs all kinds of questions. I mean, I saw some um, online criticism of like, okay, you're working four hours. Why you don't know? You don't learn what it's like. To, I don't know how long Starbucks shifts usually are. Is that? But some were criticizing. Well, hey, that's not a full shift. You're not getting the full fatigue factor based on the way the work is is set up or designed or not designed. And, and that's, I think, an important part. Um, years ago, um, uh, Ford used to run a, a, a program, and this is like 1990s, um, where they'd have new managers or execs. I can't remember who all was included in this. They'd have to go work on the floor for a shift and a half. And the specific reason a shift and a half was that the, the the key learning is what it's like to wake up a day after a shift yeah. and go back in, yeah. right? Like, hey, I'm tired. My body is sore. I've done uh, this, what you know, what we like to call industrial athleticism. Right. I, I did that for eight hours and, and worked really hard and I'm sore and I have to wake up and go back in and do it again. What does that feel like? And and so they specifically designed it for a shift and a half with that in mind. But then, of course, I guess over time, they kept the feature, but they dropped it down to like just four hours, right? Because yeah. it's like too much time. to. But it kind of missed the point. I think I think it's really good feedback. Uh, if you're going to do four hours a month, why not do, you know, 12 hours a quarter all at once, right? You right. Know, same time, but it's a different experience to, to your point of how, how 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 easy is it to make a mistake at your, you know, 900th drink or whatever yeah. that would be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a little quick Googling here. So, you know, consensus seems to be shifts at Starbucks. If it's a morning shift, it could be a 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. It could be an eight hour shift. Afternoon shifts might be shorter. So they have it sounds like a range of, you know, four to eight hour shifts, but working during the morning rush versus late afternoon is a very different experience. And hopefully he's mixing that up a little bit or the other. You know, you got, you got to open, you got to close, right. Um, you know, go through those, uh, those experiences. I did a little, you know, a little bit of food service when I was 
teenager and, you know, opening and everything you got to do and closing and everything you got to do all, all, uh, makes a difference. Um, and, you know, I'd imagine, you know, certainly more so than a manufacturing site and probably more so than a, or, uh, less so than a, uh, like McDonald's is, it's not like they're all showing up at, you know, 5.30, they have a shift huddle, and then they get to work, right? Because mm. they probably only need two people to open, and people start coming in to start their shift at a, on a somewhat a rolling basis to hit peak. Um, so it's not like you can really start with a huddle and, and and you know, sort of almost be part of that team. you got to kind of come in cold, but then, of course, that is the experience for most Starbucks employees is they they don't get a huddle. They hmm. when they show up for most of them, there's there's people in line and cars in the queue. So yeah. But the other thing, you know, beyond shift lengths and times and what's representative, um, you know, I think of an expression I learned when I was working in the UK. Um, the Queen thinks the world smells like fresh paint. Oh, that, that's such a great expression, right? Because everyone dolls up their facility and paints everything before the queen or now the king is coming. So is the Starbucks CEO and other executives getting the real experience or has everything been kind of specially prepped, including like if I was a store manager and the CEO was coming, I would certainly make sure my quote unquote <clears throat> troublemakers were not working that shit. Yep. And and I'd make sure everything was extra stocked the night before and um super clean. I, and I'd do a little extra cleaning and I'd uh I'd probably come in and work that shift myself just mm -hmm. to be, be part of it and all of that. I, I think that um now now again if you if you know um you know you can sort of bias that one of two ways. One you can um, kind of just know that it's always better than, you know, it always looks better than it actually is and just assume that that's always happening. Yeah. Um, or you can find ways around it. Right. And, mm -hmm. and that's not easy. I don't know what to be in this particular case, maybe, you know, showing up spontaneously and saying, throw me in boss. Um, but uh, there, there's gotta be some ways Around that, I know certainly in manufacturing, we always yeah. found a ways to get around the show. Um, yeah. But I, I think, you know, you think about all the other ways that they might not be the real experience. Um, you know, for, for starters, like, you know, he's probably not hoping his car starts in time to get to a shift. Right. right. Um, and, and you know, this this isn't his fault. <clears throat> and um, And it has nothing necessarily to do with, a Starbucks problem, but, you know, customers can be a lot ruder to a teenage employee, mm -hmm. right? Because they're just like you're some stupid kid and you screwed up and I'm going to come down hard on you because you're, you know, you don't get me. And and they, I'm sure he's not getting that, right? Um, some of, some of that, uh, some of that treatment is probably a little better for him than it would be for some employees. Well, and not to totally jump to Uber, but Uber CEO was saying he was surprised. He experienced how rude some Uber customers could be to the drivers in different ways. So that, that that's different than, right. So he's getting more of the, um, on 
he's getting more of the real reality that way, unfortunately. Um, it's sad, you know, people are being rude to their um, Uber drivers. But I think back to bringing it back to Starbucks, though, like, I mean, he got called out in the comments in the Wall Street Journal article, and you go and look at the picture in the article. He wasn't wearing like a black T-shirt under his apron. He was wearing a crisp white dress shirt with gold cufflinks, like way to fit in, like way to blend in with the crowd and to relate to your workers. It's like it, it makes me think of. Um, did you watch the show Arrested Development? Uh no, but I'm aware of it. There's there's, there's a famous scene and it's become this meme where the actor Steve Buscemi was, I think, playing, I don't know if he was trying to go undercover into a school. And he looked so like in his 50s and haggard and he's like got a backpack and he says something like, you know, hello, fellow kids. And, like, it's just so uh, bad attempt of a uh, bad attempt to blend in. But that I don't know. Like so. Maybe the Starbucks CEO no, means well. We don't know his intent, but man, you're, he's not blending in with the crowd. And is he actually interacting with other workers? Do 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 the baristas feel safe speaking with him honestly? And it makes me question: like, okay, getting in and doing the work versus going and visiting the stores and doing a listening tour. Maybe just doing a dang listening tour would be would build better relations with the employees and he, he might learn more because, I mean, I've heard the criticism of the whole, Oh, I'm going to jump in and do the work. Is that, well, I mean, he went and did the training, but it could come across as being a little disrespectful that you think you can just jump in and do the work. Yeah. Although he did the same training everybody else starts with. So, right. But I'm saying more generally with some of the other yeah. boss type, but, yeah. and I'll give him I'll, I'll give him the, uh, and the gold cufflinks, uh, you know, maybe they came in to do the story and uh, that day that's what he was wearing. And they're like, hey, can we run down to a store and get some pictures? Maybe. And, they, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I, I want to be. If he's working in the stores that much, he should have a black T-shirt in his office. Just No, so. that's I, and throw it on. Right. I, 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 I agree entirely. And they probably have one that they could, could have given him. So. So, you know, in, in that case, maybe the either he wasn't doing his job or the PR person uh, <laughs> running running cover didn't do their job. So it it's definitely a fair, I'll say, a fair criticism. Yeah. But, but I would say it's not. Um, so, yeah, I think a listening tour is important. How, I mean, Howard Howard Schultz did that. And I think we talked about it even on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I can't remember. I just remember, I do remember the article about his listening tour, listening, listening to baristas. Um, and, and, and I hope he's doing some of that as well along the way. Um, you know, in the Uber, Uber example, the only time you really talk to Uber drivers is either, um, uh, online, right. In forums, (laughs) um, which you know, probably have people that that monitor the forums to to find out what's really going on anyway, or you know one of those Uber lines at the airport where you queue up just like you do with the taxis, um, uh, where you get out of your car and you're ha- waiting for the queue to to die down. But um, so hopefully he is talking with the employees. I would say that looking customers in the eye, right, and and you know handing them their drinks and taking their orders and 
watching them, you know, stand with their arms crossed, uh, right. waiting for their drink because it didn't come out right away or interrupting you while you're in the middle of making a drink. I think, I think some of that interact with a customer is hard to simulate and hard to just extract from data. Sure. Right. Um, and, and so is it, is it to get to know uh, the customer experience or is it get to know the barista experience or a little bit of both? Um, good point about the customer interaction perhaps, but like one thing that rubs me the wrong way about some of these articles, there's always some detail, right? And there was more of it, I think in the Uber story, but in the Starbucks story, like, the CEO discovered, boy, we've got too many varieties of cups and lids. And I'm like, like, like this hero stuff of like, oh, the CEO swoops in and notices this problem. Like, you know, there's people in the organization who know this. And it's not the CEO's job to come in and fix it any more than it would be the plant manager's job to come in and fix something at the front line, right? So there, there was a Wall Street Journal um, comment that said, um, something that I was thinking. Um, the Wall Street Journal did one of these articles on the CEO of a food processing company, and he was getting into the weeds about the process and not wondering why there weren't systems to deal with it. And I would say that's the CEO's job. It, it is. And Make I, sure I those think, systems are there and communication yeah, I, is there. And so I think the the the, the questions the CEO, so what, what the CEO does with that experience um is is I think important. So do you do you come out of there saying there's too many cups and 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 lid choices? Now now I would argue in that particular case that the cost of complexity is really hard to calculate in mm -hmm. most cases. You can do it, but you have to, you know, you have to want to do it. You have to decide that I want to go study the cost of complexity and, and go go do that work. Yeah. And and so I'll kind of say that doesn't naturally come through the other metrics. Sure. Um, you know, should they have heard it? Sure. Do they know how big a problem it is? Maybe not. Um, so there's perhaps some some visceral impact from that. But then then the question, the systemic question is, um, when we decide to launch a product, how do we look at it as a portfolio of products? Mm -hmm. Right? Like that's, did, you know, when we when we add a cup size, um, do we automatically take one away? Um, do we automatically assess? You know, so how do we deal with cup size decisions? Right, well, it's America. The cups only get bigger. They only get bigger. <laughs> you that's only add more. That's that's a whole different problem. Um, and and so, uh, you know, in the Uber story, they kind of talked about. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the example I was I was uh, I was thinking of, but just just talked about you know sort of the what was the phrase just just basically trolling for for ratings right um, and and you know what happens when you turn down a, a, a ride you really get punished yeah. if you turn down a, a ride and so I so again you kind of go okay. Yeah, of course, nobody wants to get punished. Uh, what's wrong with the system, right? And and so you should be asking some questions. Well, who, who does own this decision? What criteria are we using to make these decisions? Um, 
And, uh, and, and are we doing that well, right? Do we have the right information? Do we have the right data? Do we have the right uh, criteria? Do we have the right experiment method of experimentation? So I, I think, you know, where you decide to intervene, right, um, is, is super critical. Mm -hmm. um, deciding like, oh, I'm just going to fix this one problem for the store. No, right? Um, and, and we, I know you've written about undercover boss. I think, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, written about it and, oh, I found the one employee to promote and I found the one employee to fire. Huh. Right. That's not why you do it. Right. That, I mean, you should be asking like, Hey, what are we doing? Let's talk to HR. What are we doing systematically to find hidden gems in the company and, sure. and find them and train them and elevate them? Mm -hmm. Because I found one and we didn't know they were there. So that means there's more. Right. Right. So so I think to that to that comment about, you know, what should you be doing? I, I do think you can get curious about different aspects of your business model, your business system, your business culture from that frontline experience. But again, are you fighting the fire or fixing the acute problem? Are you fixing right. the business model or the system? Right. So the thing about systems and you know diving into Uber a little bit, there were different questions that come to mind. Like again, like why why does the CEO or other executives have to go confirm problems firsthand? So there there was there was a quote in the one article that said that um, you know the CEO Dara and other executives realized drivers' complaints were valid. <laughs> so the assumption was that the complaints were not. Like that's to me that's 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 pretty messed up. Like why why like, like there's got to be structures for complaints and concerns to kind of you know rise to the right level and get filtered around what's a legitimate complaint versus just belly aching. I mean, I, you know, but you know when you think about what what they need to be doing, we can look at some of the details about. Um, the other phrase was, you know, uh, the need to, quote, understand driver grievances. Like, it all sounds so combative instead of collaborative. But when you asked Jamie, what should the CEO be doing? Here's the thing where I kind of laughed out loud. Is that Dara going out and driving was actually interfering with his ability to do his real job of being CEO, it said in the one article, while taking a customer to the airport one evening, he had to ignore frantic calls from his chief legal officer who was trying to alert him that a hacker had breached Uber's networks. <laughs> like, like, stay, I mean, this is a bad driving pun. Stay in your lane, dude. Like, be a better CEO and let people on your team create systems and technologies and policies that are better for your drivers. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, at the minimum, have a uh, break in code. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, if my assistant, you know, you know, I'm on shift. So call my assistant and and they know, you know, whether to break in or not break in. And so if I see my assistant call, I'm making that up. Right. But uh, I mean, is policy Uber drivers aren't supposed to be on phone calls while they're driving you? I thought that was policy. I, I assume so. It's it it hasn't been followed. Um, I can say, but he was trying to maintain his five star rating. So yeah. he took that call, 
And you know, he he might have gotten dinged in his his damn rating, but <laughs> yeah, that's one where you kind of go, yeah, I'm going to take that hit, um, um, and and answer when my uh, general counsel uh, uh, calls because that's you know usually not good news, right? So right, um, yeah, and, and I, you know, I think in terms of like validating employee complaints, um. You know, again, one at one level, you you kind of go, when is the system broken? How do I know? How do I know that they're getting to me? Mm-hmm. And and so going to see firsthand, right, is an interact at the frontline level of some in some way, right, is is a way to know whether you're getting uh, a biased view through all the different filters that come, you know, between you and the front line or a good view of what's going on. Um, how else do I know that all those filters and layers are giving me the, the truth? So you're, you're kind of at least just getting a gut check on whether you have the truth or, uh, you know, uh, really getting the wool pulled over your eyes. But I would say that's a difference, sorry to interrupt, that's a different system problem if you're not creating a culture of psychological safety. Right. No, it, it is. It's right. job more than driving a car. But but that's a lagging, you know, you, I mean, if you're a new CEO, you have no idea, right? So using the Starbucks example, you know, whatever the culture was, is the culture now. And it's going to take quite a while for a new CEO to, to transform the entire culture top to bottom. He has to know what he's working with first. Um, well, I mean, so I'm going to answer a question nobody's asked me. What should the what should the Starbucks CEO had done? I might be more impressed if he had gone and gotten hired as a barista and worked for two months at barista wages as a way of learning the business and learning the company, and then quitting. And hey, look, we promoted the barista to the CEO, which is. <laughs> but like, I, I, I don't know. I, but it comes back to these questions of like, what we don't know motivation, but what are they trying to learn? Why are they doing it? I mean, at Uber, the story really paints a picture of like, there wasn't some sort of like shift in principles or beliefs. It was really more of like, oh God, we're having trouble retaining drivers. And we tried throwing money at them and that didn't work. Um, surprise, surprise, right? So it comes back to systems. There was an article here that said, you know, the Uber um, executives had had the belief if they attracted drivers with money, the rest will take care of itself. Like processes do not just magically appear any more than policies or systems. And so that, well, is it cheaper to actually fix things than throwing $250 million in bonuses at drivers? Yeah. I, I, and so I, I think the, what are you really going to fix when you come out of that? I, I, I think becomes important, right? Is it long term? Is it short term? I think what you said, you know, really the intent is one variable, but an absolutely essential variable. Right? What is your intent in going? Is your intent in going to show that you care? Is your intent in going to uh, to uh, basically validate that? The data you have is the data you have, and it's truth. Uh, is the intent to gain new insights that might lead to shifts in strategy, um, et cetera? I think um, 
I, you know, I think it was the, uh, the Uber article. I can't, I can't find the quote now, but it was something around, um, Hey, we're re-examining some of the assumptions that's, that the business is built on. Right. Well, that's and, good. and so if, you know, if you go and, and, and look around enough and kind of go, you know what, we've been operating uh, on, on one model. And I think the model has to change. Where does that aha moment come from? Yeah. And it's probably not going to come. It's going to come from some interaction, whether it's with customers, with employees, with competitors, that's going to shape your thinking. Um, so you've got to, you've got to open the aperture somehow. Right. Um, and there's a bunch of ways to open the aperture um, uh, and, and, and think more broadly. But if, if the intent is to kind of, go look at the business model from the ground up and kind of go what's true and not true that we, what's, 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 what's true that we thought wasn't what's not true that we thought was and challenge our assumptions. I would say that's, that's pretty good intent. That would be, that would be, but you know, the, the, um, the article about Uber described how kind of like a mid-level leader, um, Convince them to quote understand driver grievances. It described a four-hour Zoom meeting with 227 slides. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like hell. Yeah, I mean, unless she made uh, her case, but no, unless the message was, uh, I you know, if, if you want, if, if unless you want to have more four-hour meetings with 227 slides, <laughs> fix these problems, right? I'm going to make this painful for you all. Yeah. Uh, and go fix stuff. Um, but I, I don't know if this isn't really a, a, a corollary exactly, but right. And this goes back to intent um, is, you know, when, when Toyota was first getting into minivans, right. They, they, they took, and I forget whether they, they, they rented existing minivans or took their own prototypes, but they, they drove around the country, the U S for, for months. Well, th this was after the first was a huge flop. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's what it was. Yep, thank you. Then they and, did these things, and then it was the whole intent was like, well, can't you just talk to customers and what what did they like and not like? It's like, no, they wanted to hop in the minivan and experience living life in different climates in a minivan and get firsthand experience and their own unfiltered Gemba experience. And so we 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 take that as Intent to learn, intent to be curious, intent to uh, right. see the Gemba, see the the true reality. Um, and, and so, you know, is when we when if we assume, I'm not saying we do, but if we assume the intent of either of these CEOs is not sound, is it is it because they were written about in the Wall Street Journal? Or is it because some of the other things like the cufflinks and the, uh, you know, and the four hour Zoom meetings and things like that, 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 that come along with it. But I, I, I would imagine that they did it. Maybe they have some good natural curiosity. They probably didn't set up like, here's the hypotheses I want to test, right? They right. probably didn't have a really deliberate learning strategy behind them. And they might, it's possible that they could have good intent and really clunky execution or good intent with some bad assumptions, 
baked in. And and thinking about like what are we trying to do? Like again, like the article um, you know about Uber kind of glorified. Oh, the CEO learned that the sign up process was clunky. Okay. Um, oh, the, the GPS had arrows for the turn directions that are hard to read in the sun. And like the team had never tested the app like outside of my, I don't know how you test a GPS app in an office. But like, again, this idea that, oh, well, the CEO found these problems and this means these problems are real. I'm like, it's going to sound harsh, but what, what the CEO has discovered is that some teams are not doing their jobs well. Which, right? which and, if, if then you, and so again, what you do with it is super do. important. If you go in to fix the GPS problem, I think that's a miss. If, or if, if it jumps the queue of, uh, well, Dara says the, the GPS is effed up, yeah. so it gets fixed faster. Right. That, that, that you know, yeah, it's, a, it's here's the, here's our customer priority list and here's our Dara list. Um, yeah, that, that's probably not right. But well, if he says... Yeah. We, I want to understand how do we test our design features in our markets because I'm not sure that that's sound. That to me is a good systemic question that would come out of that example yeah. to say, how do we do this so that these things don't happen, right? And, and I'd be okay if that was the outcome. If the outcome was we need better turn signal visibility or a, you know, turn turn graphic visibility to me that's a miss if they say how we're 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 failing to test our features in real use cases effectively how are we going to improve that i call it a win right Um, is it firefighting or systems improvement yeah and just one more voice of the customer user experience that just again as you said jumps the queue um because you're supposed to know better or are you really using it to, to um, you know, again, change the system, right? Learn, learn how the system might be producing unintended results or just bad results. I'm going to share a story that maybe I shouldn't tell. And this is a one and a half whiskeys talking. When you talk about <laughs> the CEO prioritization, whether it's bugs or features in a software company or having a memory from 24, 23 years ago, we'll call it, the Dell computer. One thing I was involved in working on um, was was trying to improve some systems so that there was this there was less need for constant expediting in firefighting. And this is not a complicated system dynamics problem of, you know, as you do more and more firefighting and expediting, the need for firefighting and expediting only increases, you know, uh, spirals out of control. So there was this this list called the hot list of here are the customer expedited orders. The people are complaining, sales is complaining on their behalf. There was the hot list. The hot list got so long that then there was basically the Michael Dell hot list. The hottest of the hot. If somebody's complaint had actually gotten to the C-suite, I'm like, that's not really a sustainable way to run operations. <laughs> and we no. were trying to fix some of the systems so they wouldn't have to do that, so that orders wouldn't fall through the cracks and now get running at the risk of, of being late or actually being late. Now we're expediting and now other stuff is becoming late because of the stuff that we've expedited. And yeah, yeah it, it shifts it shifts the problems and and doesn't really understand them. And so you know, if, if I were to break this this whole scenario down uh, to some of the components that we've 
picked apart. You, 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 you got to get three things right. You got to get intent right. Mm-hmm. right? You got to go for the right reasons. And let's let's hope that Starbucks and, and Uber are not PR reasons, but uh, they certainly leverage their PR in the process. Um, and and I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll me detour quickly here is that mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with signaling hope to, let's say, the Uber drivers that change is coming. Like we're not there yet, but change is coming. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my signals to them that. I do care. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, if it's only PR, it's, that's, again, that's that's a myth. So intent is one. Execution is another. Right. Um, as you said, whether it's do a full Starbucks shift, that's good execution. Um, or a full week. <laughs> full week. Don't don't just drive in San Francisco because that's, you know, drive in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Right. And see what different markets are like. Yeah. Um, so execution, don't wear gold cufflinks. <laughs> uh, so execution is number two. And then third is output, right? What do you do with what you take away from those experience uh, makes, I don't want to say all the difference, right? Because if you, you got to get, but you got to get all three of those right. And if you screw up any one of those three, it's probably better off not to do it. It's yeah. probably more harm than good. Yeah. No, that's, that's. That's a good list. I'm with you on that. Final thing I just want to add on any of this. Um, if someone's listening and saying, well, hey, hey, Graben, I thought leaders are supposed to go to Gemba. I'm like, well, yeah, they should. But again, to do what and how and why and what way. So to me, going to Gemba has never been jump in and do the work. You know, um, there, there was one other comment. Like most news online comment sections are accessible. Wall Street Journal, New York <laughs> Times, there's an exception. Like if you filter by good comments, there's actually sometimes good um, good comments, um, not necessarily debate, but good comments. There was one comment that sort of had it right and a little bit wrong. One person uh, said, Toyota, <clears throat> excuse me, Toyota executives had a saying, go see and go do. Like, oh, it's not really like I've heard go and see. I've heard Go see, ask why, show respect. Mm-hmm. Of going to the Gemba. So I don't know. We, we can guess the answers here. Maybe a listener knows and can let us know. Did Akio Toyota, when he was CEO, go work on the assembly line four hours a month? Or does going to Gemba for, for him and other leaders and the new Toyota CEO mean different things? Now, Toyota does have, I think, a good practice of sending people with management potential to go work in the factory mm-hmm. at the beginning of their careers, right? So a right. Sal Yoshino, whose story that Katie Anderson has helped shared, his story is in my new book and some discussion, you know, from the podcast that we did. That's good grounding, right? To understand and learn, you know, boots on the ground. Yeah. But I mean, I had it, to learn how to how to tear apart and put back together transmissions before I yeah. was allowed to be an automotive engineer, as an yeah. example. Yeah, stuff like that is good. But then, you know, another commenter was talking about this, you know, this idea of go in and do the work. You know, it's called the Gemba walk and lean practices. I'm like, well, going to Gemba to learn, to listen, to be a servant leader, to identify system problems. Like to me, that's all way more important than what could be this performative, I showed up and did the work mm-hmm. kind of thing. And like, 
uh, you know, another I think of another lean leader in the U.S. I'm just, I'm just guessing. I think I think the answer is no. Um, GE's CEO Larry Culp does he go try like for one like it would really no he he doesn't do frontline work because you've got you know aerospace parts and people have to be trained and certified and um, you know but I mean he does go participate in kaizen events right so that that has a different purpose and a different intent. So I, I I don't, I'm not so impressed with, Oh, I jumped in and did the work. I would be more impressed with, I'll bring it back to the Toyota words, go see, ask why show respect. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, intent matters. Right. And so, you know, why are you going to, to Gemba? And, and so, you know, people give generic, I, I, this is where I get, you know, I'll get critical of the lean community is because we give generic answers like that's where the answers are. Well, to what question? Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think early on in your learning experience, you go to Gamba just to learn that that's where real information is. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why you're going to Gamba is to learn the value of going to Gamba. But the rest of the time you do it, you should have a reason you're there. Right. You have a reason that you're what are you looking for? And it could be, you know, system stability. It could be you know, a very broad reason, but you know why you're there. You're not just wandering around, right? And, and and so you bring capabilities of observation to the table and you have clarity of purpose or intent behind it, right? That's how you do it well, right? So going to Gemba isn't automatically good. Hmm. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've got stories where leaders going to Gemba can be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, so it's... Yeah, go to Gemba um, is, is, you know, comes along with 17 asterisks and footnotes. It's um, it's not enough. You got to oh, behave at the Gemba matters a lot. Yeah. So, again, intent, execution, output. Um, yeah. Those three those three elements uh, still every time you go to Gemba, you have to get all three. Why are you there? How are you behaving when you're there? Right. What skills, what behaviors, what words? Um, and then what do you do with what you learn? Um, and if, if, you know, I, I would argue that the only thing I really ask people to correct immediately, uh, is safety. (laughs) Um, but the rest is like, be curious, right. And ask questions and then, you know, go look for, you know, again, what's our intent in being there and is it fueling that intent uh, as we, as we go forward. So, so whether it's Toyota or it's Uber, um, there's a, there's a good way to go where the work is done and there's a bad way to go to yeah. the work is done. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, not, not, we don't make a point of criticizing the wall street journal. Um, although it might seem like that happens more than more often than not. <laughs> um, but it's really, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, the writers aren't going to know what we're looking for in this article. And so, they, they they're not going to get to maybe that level of detail, but we don't know enough, perhaps, whether their go to Gamba um, is good or or bad. But right. as you pointed out uh, successfully, I'll say is there's plenty of red flags um, that either their uh, their intent is flawed, their execution is flawed, or their output is yeah. flawed. Yeah, I mean, the intent of the writers is to sell 
subscriptions and to retain subscribers, right? So I, I found these articles interesting to read over my cup of coffee in the morning. And if I ever think like, ah, I don't know if that Wall Street Journal subscription is worth it. And then there's these articles. I'm like, well, okay, this is interesting. And here we are talking about it. So <laughs> yeah, and here we are. So it's giving us Thank you, Wall Street Journal. But um, but final, final, final thing I'll say, let's say if it was, uh, if there was an article of, you know, um, he's now, they're, they're transitioning, but I'm still going to say, uh, Toyota CEO, Akio Toyota, goes and works on the assembly line. And he noticed that these two parts don't fit together well. And he got, oh, he got that fixed. And like, for one, I would, you know, like that should not be something the CEO has to discover. Great. And even if Akio Toyota was going to Gemba to listen and a worker was like, you know, hey, look, these parts don't fit together well. Like that's a huge system failure if that's not getting addressed and fixed. Like there are things where CEO needs to be a servant leader on for sure. But, you know, like a lot of the stuff described in these articles should really be addressed by lower to mid-level product teams and product owners, not right. the CEO. If yep. the CEO's job is to be strategic, yep, get out of the weeds. Yep. I, we're, we're on the same page there. Um, I think the way I like to talk about weeds are, we, weeds are information. Um, they, aren't, they aren't there for you to pull, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they mightn't tell you about, you know, uh, I'll, 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 I'll overextend the analogy. They might tell you something about the quality of, of uh, lawn care, <laughs> that's taking place that you might want to address. Um, but the weeds aren't there for you to pull. And so what you do with the information and do you find the right leverage at the right level? Yeah. You still want to know about the weeds, but you know where your leverage is as the CEO is different and yeah. you should wield that leverage properly. So Jamie and I agree on a lot of this. And we were talking before we started recording, like part of my original concept for lean whiskey is that maybe this would be like, pardon the interruption, but about lean in business and like, okay, this, this is not an arguing show where we shout at each other for five minutes and move on to another topic. This is not <laughs> ESPN first take Or <laughs> you know, I mean, Stephen A. Smith says he never says anything he doesn't believe, but a lot of these shows Seem to be sort of set up a like, hey Jamie, which side are you going to take? Okay, I'm going to take the opposite side. No, go here, go fight. <laughs> yes. Well, and I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a little off topic, but I'll, I'll go with a different cultural angle than pardon the interruption. Is I, I, I do love revolutionary era U.S. Uh, revolution history, and you know the the probably the only thing we can say about the beliefs of founding fathers is that they were pluralists mm-hmm. they believed that you know more than one thing can be true at, at once and um I, I think you and i both take that tact which makes it hard to have a uh an absolutist uh well, i'll take this end you take that end and we'll yeah. battle it out approach. I mean, so yeah it, may, it reminds me, there was an old Daily Show bit people can go and find and look at the YouTube. But it was, if you remember, Stephen versus Stephen. I, I, yeah, I didn't watch a lot. Of, well, I, I still don't watch a lot of TV, but I haven't, I haven't seen that. Yeah. And this is when both Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert were on the show. Mm. And like, the, the, the debate segment was just like, no, you wrong, wrong. Just, just that, that sounds actually worth watching. So I <laughs> go Google um, 
Daily Show Stephen versus Stephen. Or you know, uh, I think I will. I think I will. Uh, sorry if I yelled into the microphone. That's okay. Audio processing. <laughs> the audio processing is supposed to uh, tone that down a little bit. Sorry, but um, oh yeah. Oh goodness, yeah. There's a. I'm gonna go watch some of these afterwards. <laughs> that was oh, the the classic era of the Daily Show. Yes, it was. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'll, I'll have to check them out. That's. I probably wasn't watching. Stephen versus Stephen. Um, hey, hey, gratuitous plug for the My Favorite Mistake podcast. Um, not only if you caught the episode, Jamie, I got to interview the guy who created Comedy Central. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and that's Art that Bell. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So he had. Um, John Stewart stories, and they were all positive of uh, him him being a, a good dude. That that was that was a fun episode. He had crazy stories about um, uh, Al Franken, and um, oh gosh, back when they would do the live State of the Union address commentary. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't remember who, but Al, Al Frank Al Franken had a meltdown like an uh, the way I remember it, like an hour before the broadcast. He didn't realize it was going to be a live show. <laughs> <laughs> and he almost quit and stormed out on them. So um, my favorite mistake, Art Bell, um, he had some really, uh, he had some really good stories. And, and he, had a, he had a story about the time uh, Bill Maher wanted to get him fired. Wow. It was a marketing campaign that he did. Um, so this, this guy had stories. He had a, a good book about the uh, early days of, uh, of Comedy Central, but. That's a it's a world of ego, I have to say. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, I I think there's very little that has to do with maybe what the customer wants, but what the ego wants. So, all right. Well, so we, we've we, already we've already plugged some podcasts like my favorite mistake and the the forthcoming people yeah. solve problems. Um, uh, but uh, for those that get this far into our episodes, we know. No, we, we like to end with a fun question, and um, since this is all about fun, and we, I think we've used this question before, but, you know, time has passed, and so it's a good time to ask it again. Yeah. But a, a recent uh, podcast that you've started listening to, maybe you feel good recommending. So what do you have for that, Mark? I'm trying to remember what I might have answered before. Um, when did we ask this question last? Oh, probably like episode two, I think. I, I okay. I, I and I I can't say for sure. It just feels like we probably would have. But okay. Well, anyway, so um, this is this is within the last year, um, a relatively new uh, podcast for me. And I, I, I listen to episode every episode. I can't get enough of it. It's called Culture by Design, and it is by uh, Tim Clark and Leader Factor. It's a podcast about psychological safety and it is, it is, it is great. So can't recommend that enough culture by design. Yeah. I, I've actually, uh, I don't want to say I stumbled upon it, but I, I, I actually just found that, that podcast and think of my last long drive, listened to a couple episodes. So, um, I'll, I'll be listening to some more. Um, so, so that that's probably you know much more lean adjacent than 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 mine my recommendation, um, but but mine is mine has been fun. It's called Stuff You Should Know, hmm. um, and and they cover just odd things that um, I guess they're not all odd, but a lot of them are odd things yeah. that they go 
kind of deep into and uncover. And it really feels like they are they are learning, not during the episode, but they're learning in preparation for an episode. And um, there's been episodes, everything you should know about coffins, everything hmm. you should know about skydiving, everything you should know about playing cards, like things that you just, oh, that's, I know what a coffin is. Okay, well, do you know the history behind it? Do you know, you know, and, and so they, they you know, it's, it's been, you know, I'll say obscure history and facts. Um, it's very, it's an interesting title, Stuff You Should Know. There's probably li- very little in it that you should know. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably stuff, stuff you want to know. You just have to, in hindsight, yeah. oh, I should have known that. Stuff that you enjoyed hearing, <laughs> but maybe well, not stuff that anybody needs to know. Uh, but it's but that's the name of the stuff you should know and and i the team that does it i I think they have some fun with it and it's a good pair and uh it's a it's i've enjoyed the show okay i'll check that out and then random question before we go have you been i forget have you been watching i don't know the answer to this uh season three of ted lasso have you been watching it not yet um i i think we're i don't know what we're waiting for i don't know if we're waiting for you're gonna binge it we will probably binge it. I don't know if like a weekend binge is probably too much, but um, I don't know if we're waiting for the, the college kids to come home, uh, which we're still a month away from or, or what exactly. Honestly, we've, we've, we've all been pretty busy in this house that uh, hasn't been a lot of, I think whatever the last show my wife and I started, we're, we're well behind on. So, um, but no, it will, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, I'm I'm increasingly torn about Ted Lasso as much as it's a good show. It, it has, I think quite literally put back uh, the reputation of American coaches in international (laughs) soccer back a decade. And I'm not kidding. I, people don't realize it's just comedic. It, it, yeah, I think they realize it, but it's, it's, it, it's basically been an easy way to just mock any American that dare coach mm-hmm. on. So, oh boy, we've had a, a couple of American coaches uh, at different levels. Um, Jesse Marsh was fired from Leeds, which is a historic club, and um, Armis uh, was a assistant um, under a couple of different coaches. Been fired a couple times now, and both apparently earned you know both both within players and within fans earn a Ted Lasso moniker. And it's, it's not meant to be. No, uh, you no, know, it wouldn't be a compliment. No, no. And, and so I, I, I do, I do really feel as much as this shouldn't be true. I, I, I feel it's actually put back mm. uh, the opportunities for American coaches in wow. the international sport, which is a shame, but on the plus side, it's made me a little bit more interested in football. Hey, great! I'll take that. <laughs> the, um, um, the, uh, the 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 episodes have have become uh, a lot longer. So I think it's ten episodes for a season. A lot of these are pushing like an hour long. So yeah, I, see, I, caught up, I saw uh, some random headline that said like, "Why do these need to be more than thirty minutes?" So. I guess I, I I knew that part was coming. Well, you get what you measure, as some people say. If you if the contract is for ten episodes, well, you didn't say how long they could be. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I'm not. I, I'm joking when I say I'm losing interest. But but my my team Everton is oh. uh, 
well, on the day we're recording this, lost four to one. Um, it's it's not good. We're probably getting relegated. And uh, I know what that means now. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and exactly, they're getting relegated for the first time since the fifties. Um, uh, you know, historic club and uh, just a, a, a god awful uh, run in a couple of years, and it, it there really looks like no hope. So, yeah. um, my my, I think my family watches the schedule for when Everton's playing to uh, give me a wide berth. Uh, <laughs> it's not going well. Um, well, and I did a search here. I was wrong. There are 12 episodes. The first season was 10. The second season was 12. Season three here is uh, 12. So we are uh, seven. I've, I've been watching them every week. And I learned that actually they drop, as they say, Tuesday evening. Okay. Not Wednesday. So I've been okay. watching them Tuesday evening. But um, all right. Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a future episode. How's that? There we go. All right. All right. Well, uh, well, cheers. Cheers to CEOs who do the right thing on the front line and uh, to our blended whiskeys and to Lean Whiskey Podcast. And to our sourced whiskeys. Thank you to the sourcers and the sourcees. Sure. That works. <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Lean Whiskey. To learn more or find more episodes, visit leanwhiskey.com. Spelled either K-E-Y or K-Y. You can also visit leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey or jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are very grateful for every rating, review, and follow. Until our next episode, cheers. Cheers.